perspective, I think a lot of the changing tenant trends and demands that we're seeing um, are in part due to the sharing economy, uh, the on-demand economy, which is all being led by consumer electronics and this advance in technology. So um, I'm going to introduce very briefly our panel uh, today. So to my left, we've got Andy Booth, uh, who's Senior Portfolio Manager at Nuveen. Um, we've got James Finnis to his left, um, Head of Southeast Office Agency at JLL. Um, and then Ben Dickens um, from APAN, he's a Senior Asset Manager there. And finally, Simon Lee from CBRE, he's a Senior Director there. Um, so, um, off the, so, off the bat immediately, uh, Ben, I'm going to come to you first. Um, how is all of this change in kind of technology leading to a change in what tenants want? I think, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I think the, from a tenant point of view, um, it's interesting because it gives tenants access to actually a lot more data, a lot more visibility on what they could have. Uh, I think people like WeWork have kind of really maximised on that and show people what they can, what they can get at. Um, the, the marketplace, in my view, is opened up so they can see all the assets on the market, they can compare the competition, they can check you know, the internet speeds quite quickly as well. Um, so that visibility they get from the technology is, making, is driving up demand and then that's why you kind of see levels of customer service that have been driven by the landlords as part of that competition to, to, to grab tenants. And uh, Simon, are you seeing that in the central London market specifically? Yeah, I think so. Um, from there, uh, on the landlord's advisory side, I think uh, landlords have been slow to, to react to the, the huge structural change that we've seen uh, driven about by the technology. The, and fluctuation in the economy, political environment, um, but definitely technology is coming in to morph conversations uh, when you're looking at assets. Um, and for me, I think some landlords are a bit nervous about making mistakes because uh, there's a lot of technology out there. But you've got to kind of look at your asset and the rounds and, and try to kind of work it in. Uh, and, and some landlords will make mistakes, and I think you have to expect to make mistakes, but it's definitely here to stay and be spotting as well. They want, they want data and they want, they want to be engaged. Yeah, and, and James, from the sort of out of London perspective, are you seeing a similar thing with the drive from landlords trying to adopt technology to differentiate assets? Yeah, very much so. In some ways, we're almost having to pedal that a little bit harder. Um, you know, we've got a, a, an even more competitive market. You know, the demand can be thinner out of the greater London, southeast market. Uh, so, therefore, the landlord has got to invest. And, as, uh, as you say, some they've got to invest in the right technology. It's very easy to go down the wrong path. You know, to choose the tenant engagement app to get the wrong one, um, or indeed to put some technology in that's not accurate, not you know, not appropriate when you come to deliver the building. I think the other piece is the the nature of the employee expectation has has, has changed. Um, you know, we live in a subscription economy. We all you know we've all got Netflix, but as Spotify, you know, we don't buy our content anymore. We want to subscribe to it. And that goes down to then individual choice and then choice from demand. So if you think, you know, thinking about um, how the engagement apps are working, the idea of someone being able to fill around with a light, fill around with your air conditioning system, people who are running buildings, and, and thinking about how that actually works and you know, the implication of it. But you know, the individual employee has their requirement. So you're talking about your expression. Yeah, the landlord absolutely got to do it. Making that investment and the right investment. It's, it's more challenging as we get more choice out of it. I think they've also got to sacrifice space as well. 
building, and that's a, it's an issue for fund managers and asset managers to, to take away this off floor of the premium space within your building to put a communal lounge and yeah. a meeting room space that you book on demand. That's to a, that, that to a fund manager and a value that's that's it. Should that form a rent really, shouldn't you? And if we, when you really look at the, the, the lower boycotts over a long period of time, no one ever does that, that's the problem. That's where you go back from the recent velocity of your lower floors and the short because you're providing that rich environment that, uh, that occupies the When you're writing off that capital cost of that 11%, maybe, which is a good view in terms of how far you're prepared to go, but um, <laughs> a lot more. Um, but you know, when you've got 10-11% of the building, which is in vertical, is not limited because you've got a breakout area, you've got a sky bar, you've got a test, whatever it may be, um, it's a really difficult capital discussion. Um, but to say it's a, it may well get you more red, but proven that can be, can be challenging. And, and Andy, would you agree with this kind of general perspective or, or perhaps saying that real estate is becoming more of a B2C market as opposed to a B2B market? Yeah, I think from, from our perspective, certainly we're seeing this trend more and more prevalently. We, um, we think that we, I guess the landlord and tenant relationship as was is broken. We know it's broken. And we've recognised as, as a business that we are far too removed from the end users of, of our properties. And we need to we need to align much more with our with our tenants or as we are starting to call them our, our customers. Because I think in the introduction it was mentioned there's an adversarial perhaps relationship between landlords and tenants, whether that's over a rent review, arguing over a rent at least start or dilapidations at the end. But actually technology is enabling us um, to, I guess, gain more data, as, as was discussed, other tenants, but also become more aligned. So through uh, building apps, for example, um, you can run spaces like, like we talk about, communal spaces, tenants that are demanding much more from the buildings, and we can't just pay lip service to that. We need to understand them, collaborate with them. Great. And Simon, I'll swing back to you from the agency perspective. Um, how is the agency model changing as a result of this kind of uh, technology and space? Yeah, I was thinking that I would show my age. I'm, I'm letting some buildings for the third and fourth time, and uh, it, it's never been as difficult to, to, to get it right this time because you're having to pack so much into, into a building. Uh, some buildings are just not fit for purpose for, for a modern uh, tech world that we live in. Um, so it's tough. So, so your agent, who to be previously referred to space put up to that board and waiting for the, for the tenant to come by is, uh, is really having a challenge in not only on the, the sort of delivery of the space but also in terms of you know our competition now is uh, for, for space sort of sub probably 5,000 square foot floor base it's online brokers that captured the market um, and even the likes of CBRE who you know got, uh, got some spending power in sort of the tech world you know our platforms probably you know are, are and not where they should be. Um, so that's a challenge, is trying to bring all those um, components together to your, to your package and your offer um, to ultimately to go back to, to driving returns for your clients. So it's a real challenge. We, we discussed this before about kind of landlords can incentivize agents a bit differently. So you know, we talked about it, you get a little bit, not so much the regions where you stick agents and retainers. It's not deal making, it's marketing, it's a whole package of advisory services to a landlord because people like yourself are speaking to agents and you know, the tenants every day, you have the coalface, you give a better understanding than the landlords will have.
So there should be a way of keeping animals in the container, get them working with animals, and then interacting a bit better so you can kind of focus the building and make it bespoke to that sub-market in the targeting. I think that's right. It's using, um, using agents differently, um, not purely to do deals, but uh, to bring the overall kind of knowledge together to create the package, but then use other platforms or other means to go and source your, your leads. And, and do you think that's a London-centric thing, or is this James, James coming back to you again from the outer London perspective? I think it's a, it's a very similar piece. I think <clears throat> finding a tenant is one thing, creating the right environment uh, and the right magnet that's going to pull in the occupier, but more importantly, the employee is far more important. You know, you are back to, um, uh, you know, we are curating environments, rather, rather appropriate as we sit to the summer crib, but, um, you know, it, it's all about delivering um, uh, that environment that the employee is going to uh, want to work in. Um, therefore, what we're doing, you know, almost the very last bit of our job, um, uh, in terms of agencies going and finding the occupier, you've got to do so much uh, pre-work to get the right product before you come to it. It gets back, what do we do these days? You know, cat <laughs> you know, how many buildings are we putting in? Prosecco on tap. <laughs> they, they've taken advantage of it because they're now road testing chairs for their product because they, 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 they've rolled out a few fit ads, furnished spaces, and the feedback from the chairs that they originally chose wasn't particularly uh, fitting for the space. So they're now, as I say, the, the detail that you have to go to now to, to try to, uh, to capture uh, the best kind of leasing velocity is uh, it's intense. I think we work for showing the way in terms of marketing and customer service, but still not convinced they really give the best product in terms of the, the real estate, which more institutional landlords are better at. So there's a blend there, which, which the institutional guys can learn from. There's the guys sitting in the service offices and the air conditioning's not working, and, the <coughs> all, and there's too many people in the office. There's, there's, there's definitely a blend to get. I, I think from my perspective, well, sorry. No, I'm just going to ask you about that. There's a wide space between the traditional landlord and what we thought was a traditional landlord product, let lease for 10 years, do the cafe, and then see the tenant in 10 years' time, perhaps. And what we work do, and what you know, those types of operators do, and you look at Notel or, or WeWork doing their headquarters by WeWork, that space where they're providing, I guess, a managed solution, but a turn to open a single door for an occupier that they can go in. Life's a bit easier for them than it was historically with landlords. But selfishly, excuse me, from my perspective, that's the space we should be operating in because we work will try and do it, but I think we can deliver better products and 
potentially we don't have to hit the profit margins that we're looking to hit. Um, on the data, I absolutely agree with you. My sense is that the, the service office model absolutely will move away from the operating model to a land that was quite able, uh, conventional um, uh, solution, providing your flex space. You own the building, of course you do the best of it. You're going to work out you know, how, you, how you run the building properly, and the AC will work. You probably won't try and squeeze people in at one to find uh, some service office <laughs> operators. <laughs> Wonderful, isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't work because the buildings aren't designed for that basis. But, that's, that's an evolution of the process. And dare I say it's taken a big operator to come out there perhaps and make that mark before our market has perhaps reacted to it. I think you're right. I think you see uh, landlords look at it and look at the risk profile. Is that they're big enough and they've got the support behind them to pay their own product into <coughs> some operational risk? But I, I, I think we'll see more partnership models created. Well, this is a good time to come to Andy with respect to Devonshire Square. So what have you learned? Yeah, so for, for those of you who don't know, Downtree Square um, is a joint venture between uh, Nuveen, um, some third-party capital, and WeWork, who have 10% uh, of, of the equity um, and are clearly quite a large occupier across the estate. Um, we have learned a lot, um, and it's been a very interesting ride so far. I think anything with WeWork is, is, is interesting. <laughs> Um, from, from, from our perspective, and, and why the joint venture started, I guess, um, we as Nuveen, large as we are, aren't um, in a position to launch our own competition, competing entity to, to WeWork. We know the resources involved in doing that, particularly in terms of staff. Um, we don't think we're agile enough to, to do that, and it's not an avenue we want to pursue. So, as we discussed, strategic partnerships are what we want to do. And a couple of years ago, we partnered up with, with WeWork. They're great at the sort of hospitality-led side of life. Um, we, we're the kind of boring policemen in this joint venture, by the way. Um, you know, it, it's a luxical structure. We have to, to deal with that sort of thing. But we're not as good at them as them phone parties, for example. So that's very activated in state. There's, there's music festivals, uh, yoga, um, free breakfast on a Monday, all that good stuff, which does, you know, sounds like we work um, cheap offerings just to get people in and then, but it does work and, and it, it activates the space. So I think so far, then you would hear, touch room, it's, um, it's been a successful partnership. Um, the buildings are full, um, the other tenants actually, third party direct tenants are, are loving it, I think as well, they had the benefits. So I think, to the, further, to the earlier point, we're going to take what we've learned and do some more strategic partnerships and we, we realise we're not going to have our own sub-brand, but that white label idea is something we're looking at with perhaps a, a more traditional property manager on a, on a pan-European basis um, where we can draw in people asset-by-asset, asset, um, just to get closer to, to our tenants, as I said earlier. And I'll, I'll open up a question to the rest of the panel. How important do you think the role of the property manager is when it comes to sort of meeting new tenant demands? I can lead on that. I think my view is it's not really as much a property manager, so I think building managers is kind of a much more interesting thing to look at. So uh, when I with Neil Sterling from TV Bennett, actually went to Amsterdam to look at a, a business called Merit. And they, the, the, the model was quite simple. They bought relatively cheap and cheerful office buildings, quite big ones. Didn't spend a huge amount on the office combination, but activated their ground floors massively. They just cut out huge amounts of space. You're talking about much more breakout spaces. But 
the design and the operation of that was all with the building manager. So they recruited technical people, upskilled them with customer service, gave them ownership, properly paid them, incentivized them on, on lettings to make sure the buildings fully occupied. So the level of customer service was amazing. So you walk in and they go, oh, Ben, here's your cappuccino, I know you like it, room four is booked for you, no problem. They know everyone's name and they, they know how the building operates. And that level of kind of is, is property management, building management is actually really important. So it can be done on an asset-by-asset asset basis even if you've got one or a hundred properties. And, and how much of that kind of running of the building is down to good data in the first place? Well, I think, uh, I think you need to know your market fundamentally. It's, it's absolutely crucial. Um, it's difficult. Well, can you have too much data? I think you need to understand what, what you are, what you're targeting. Um, and, and take it from there, that's, that's the thing. I think you need to build uh, effectively an identity for the building. And then I think you need to then give your customers all the data they can and convey in a message they understand. It needs to be simple. How much does it cost to occupy the building? Like you tell them what the first fit is going to be, and they go, what the business makes, it's service charge, there's utilities, there's anything else they want to pay. So it's kind of actually gathering all that data at the start and saying actually to occupy your building it's going to cost this much money. And then people can understand it, I think they'll engage with you a lot more and you can plug all sorts of kit into building management systems, people like the Marmonship can do it, you can tell you how much CO2 is in the building, how cold is it, how hot is it, tell you how your productivity is doing in the building. So all of that, gathering it together and patching up and giving the right access to your customers is really important. Great, and, and you touched on a point now, which is quite interesting, and the, the idea of people not understanding rent and service charge and rates on top of that. Do you think the idea of rent per square foot is outdated? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at all of our occupiers, they look at the bottom line, you know, they want to know what is the fully loaded cost, and often that will be over a 10-year basis, amortising out their cap fee and their fit-out uh, expenditure. Um, they generally looking at uh, the, the single cost, um, or indeed the, the desk cost. And, you know, they are absolutely fixated on that in a number. And you're absolutely right. As a business, you know, on the conventional side and the investment side, that front, we look at the headline rent. It's probably the last number they're interested in. You know, they want to know what is that fully loaded base cost uh, to work out that cost per person. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think they. Uh language has to change as well. I think for landlords, if they want to enhance returns, the old metric of square footage is just holding you back. And actually, if you can create value through a, a great, productive, enriched environment, that does great value, which is deliver you enhanced returns. And it's, it's a mind shift for the, for the, for the valuers and the fund managers to, to, to get around. But it, it's got to be the way forward. Then you can compare it to a WeWork or a Regis, and they go, right, that's that cost per desk. That's the cost per desk to be in, in Newman's building. But while WeWork's 25% more expensive, yeah. there's a flexibility conversation. But I went around a uh, story space in Australia, uh, so I took some landlord clients around, and we were talking pounds per square foot. And if you break back the floor in a, in a story building, it's £250 a square foot. Now, most people just run a mile. <laughs> but if you say, well, that's £1,000 a desk, it's a different conversation. Yeah. But that's <coughs> what I was saying earlier, effectively, you know, there's a massive opportunity for landlords here to, to get with the times and, and react to this. And in Downshire Square, for example, particularly in the WeWork space, we operate effectively on a NOI basis. So 
that's what we're looking for. And they're really above the conventional rent that you can, you can generate revenue, which tends to be happy to pay for in the subscription economy. If, if you make things convenient and easy for people, you know, prop, running property is not their business, they just want to get on with their core business. So I think it is a change, and we can be more flexible in terms of lease terms as well. We don't have to just look, and we need to talk to the values. Yeah, that's but there's a natural apologist of the building squares in the room. Um, trying to describe dilapidations to a tenant. So at the end of the lease road, I paid a load of rent, and I paid for my fit out, and then I've got to pay for it at the very end, to take it out, and for use and refurbish it. It's extraordinary, and of course, you go to a service, the last thing you're going to get charged for is one of the fees. And of course, you know, repairing obligations in the lease normally takes about 20 pages, which most people, like lawyers, can't understand. Um, I do think there is an absolute piece that as a business, conventional business, we can go off straight like that. You know, there's either there is an extra charge around them, uh, or we find a way of building that into the ground. Because the maps are, that, that's going to die out, that's dying something. So the, the, the um, fitted solutions are provided to the market, fixed cost up front is, yeah. let's just know, it's, it's 10 pounds a square foot or a lump sum, and they just build that into their, uh, into their model and their occupation cost of the space. Yeah. So there's a lot of time so, so this, this whole office acquisition process, we've got a couple of ideas there as to how to make it more people-centric and friendly. How much further can we go? You know, if, if we were all kind of leading the market today, what would your ideal office acquisition process be? Would it simply be as easy as it is to go to a WeWork, sign a four-page document and you're in? Or is there something from perhaps the landlord's perspective where you need a little bit more security than that? Or... Throw out some ideas. I think um, JLL invested uh, a couple of years ago in something called the Next Office, uh, which is a, a suite in our building in, in Morris Street, uh, where you can go uh, go in and essentially choose an office building. You, you filter down uh, depending on different uh, different requirement uh, criteria, but then we've matterported, we've scanned about seven million square foot in central London. The idea being, you can go into the uh, go into this room, sit down, comfy sofa nice little skinny latte in your hand and you can go and view a load of buildings. Um, I think that, that process uh, absolutely will be the way that we go about it. So rather than going out and <coughs> you know, getting, uh, getting your, your, your shoes muddy, you can go and see the, the space virtually. But I think there's then the next bit, which is how you then document, negotiate and document it. You know, it goes back to that point, 100 page leases, it's, it's just not relevant. It's moving towards more of a residential model. And I've worked with clients on creating products fit for, for, for the market. And we've looked at that. We have three lease options. It's a one year, three year, five year. And they're two pages, three pages, four pages. And they're appropriate for, for the product you're selling into the market. As you said earlier, I mean, you can, you, we can read them overnight and sign them in the morning. So you've got to simplify the whole process. If there's areas in the way, um, occupiers will go to the, the building around the corner where it's made simple. And that's, that's the world we live in. Leveraging the tech, I think it's important. We spend a lot of time, money, trying to get all rented reality visuals, and then you can change the bits out. And tenants will actually start to engage in the space. You know, we discussed actually if talking about you're doing a fit out, it's taking out most of the ceiling, all the lights, you're rearranging all the fan coils, just wasting everyone's, both the tenant and the landlord's money. It'd be interesting to see if someone can really develop an engaging shell and floor product where actually there's very little in the space. The common parts will done, but you can go in and engage the tech and see it in the space and mm -hmm. actually work out what it's going to be like fitted. Because the big empty box 
Paul looks the same to, to, to most people, because most people don't do that many office news in their life. So, so that kind of touches on the idea of VR as one particular solution to differentiate an asset. What other differentiating solutions, not only tech, but also physical differentiators, are there in the market that landlords are using now to, to adhere to the market better? I mean, the list is getting longer than we were talking about this earlier in terms of the expectation uh, of what you've got to deliver to get the employee right. Uh, the employee engagement in the asset right. You know, I look in, in my market, terraces are adding huge value. Um, there is a bit of a debate about whether you can rentalise them. Uh, we have rentalised them up in Cambridge uh, because the market was uh, just so strong up there. Uh, the sky bar, um, you know, there's, these are the physical attributes, but then you go down to course, all of the other services that you can provide in the, in the breakout space to be an artist. But I do think there's something about community. Um, one of the assets that we worked on for many years was with uh, Landon and Rockton down in Reading, uh, a building called Thames Tower. What they were phenomenally good at uh, was creating community. They had, believe it or not, 25p in the uh, service charge budget called Fun, literally called Fun. And of course, when the solicitor got there and read Fun in the budget, pointed out the FDA. Taking that community and building a uh, point a little bit further, I think for us as a, a global landlord, we're looking to take that, yes, community in, in our buildings, but actually try and commute uh, those larger tenants around our global portfolio. So they know they're going to get a consistent service because they're getting it in um, London, let's say, but they've got a, an office requirement um, in Amsterdam, for example. Whilst it won't be a cookie cutter approach like we work, um, we think you know that feeling, almost the ethos of that community, and um, they've got a good experience. Why change it? And then we make it easy and convenient for them to move. Hopefully, that will differentiate us from others. And Simon, you've got an interesting story about a client who went to Paddington, I believe. And was that decision to go somewhere different led by the promise of a better? Kind of environment to they, didn't, they didn't go to Paddington no. because of the promise of something else, but they used um, uh, uh, analytics. They, this was a business that wanted to recruit eight, nine hundred um, tech people to run an arm of the bank, um, and they wanted to, to make sure that the building was located in the right place. Um, so they used the likes of LinkedIn to, to kind of pinpoint where that building should be to maximise the chance of of uh, securing that talent and they, they thought they were going to be out west in Paddington uh, and they had a great option to go out there but 
they actually probably put 30-40% on the on the headline that number to, to, to get the right building to make sure that the uh, arm of the bank was successful. Um, so people are being really smart about their, their choice of buildings. And um, I go back to, you know, we're talking about development here, but even the biggest developments are really are struggling to, to pack everything into their buildings to make sure the package is right. Um, because the search criteria is it's tough for, uh, for corporates. You know, they want everything. On, on social media, we, we do quite a targeted social <coughs> advertising. Tenant comes on, they're talking to us, engaging on the website, so we spend a bit of money, Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, try and stay away from more LinkedIn, we don't debate people's lives too much and say, but you work out what, what do they want, what's most important for them? Is it, is it accessibility, is it well-being, is it sustainability, is it nearby amenities, and then develop a message around that and then kind of get kind of slightly into their conscious a bit. So they're seeing it, because you want their all their employees buy into it, you just don't want the MD and the FD making the decision. I think that decision making is starting to expand. HR's coming around, they're engaging workplace consultants and getting the junior members of their firms to come. So how do you kind of talk to them? It's not just numbers and, and a central location that's important these days. That's really interesting to hear that you're using social media to market your buildings because you typically think you've got your CEOs and things like that who aren't really going to look at Instagram every day and think, oh, that's a pretty building, we'll go there. Um, is everyone else seeing that as a trend in the market? Is that something that you're looking actively to do? Or is it, has it been done before? 100% for me, we, we use that as a tool and absolutely it's more and more common tool and, and valuable. I think long gone are the days that the MD and, and the FD are the only guys and girls on the view. Um, you're absolutely right, it's, and these guys will know more. Um, it's, it's the HR teams, it's members, younger members of the, of the, um, the businesses, so 100% we use that. For, for us, you know, we use LinkedIn uh, because it's such a powerful tool in terms of being able to talk to the right uh, people. Now, that may well not be the C suite, but it may well be the influences that are within the businesses, and being able to target on a very granular level is important. But I think it's also how you're using tech, you know, from the days of website, because you have a website. And, um, but being able to then drill down with lead forensics to see who's going onto the website, um, obviously it's a bit stage protection uh, rules. Um, uh, but you know, being able to see if the employees on mass have gone to have a look at your website and that properly means you're not in a bad negotiating position. So it's just a question of how you're leveraging your data and your tech. I think one of the biggest credentials you can get when uh, elected to a business and, and they post something on social media that to the fact that they're proud to go into that building and they, that says that you've, you've got Great, so we've got a couple of minutes before we go out to the audience, so if you do have any questions, think, think them over over the next couple of minutes. I'm going to have one final question from me, which is going to be similar to Desert Island Discs. So you've got three things that you can put into your new building to attract the latest generation of tenants. What are those three things? And due to Simon's face, I'm going to go to you first. <laughs> One and then go. Oh, I like that. Yeah, we do that. Great, would do. I like to put a rooftop. So. <laughs> 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 no, you're next. You, you can't have the same thing. <laughs> okay. Well, I actually would just have the just the best internet connection you've been oh, to. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> 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 
Absolutely, I have to say that the building mobile and connectivity is as important as anything going forward because I don't know what it's like in, in your office, but when the, uh, the internet goes down or someone can't get a mobile phone uh, connection, the rage is absolutely <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. So that, that is the most important thing. But if I was going to choose something different, it is, um, I like that idea of swing pool, but I think uh, a flexible, um, community space within the building. So that may be an auditorium and um, also has the ability to uh, be activated through um, individual activations, whether that be uh, markets, um, dedicated space for individual tenants to run meetings themselves, just to provide that extra space. And we talked about it earlier, you have to take a bit of a hit in your letable space, but absolutely be rewarded in terms of um, velocity of letting and hopefully around. Great, so on that note, we're going to open up to the crowd. Um, does anyone have a question they'd like to ask? I'll run around with the mic and uh, hand it over. Here we go, one at the front. Has to be me. Um, is there a reason why none of you chose tele-engagement apps as the thing? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so common now, that's the thing. There's, there's a lot of choice. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a given now, actually. Um, I don't think it's so much, is, is it nice to have? I think you, you have to have it in some capacity. Um, so that's probably why. I think it's really important, though, to otherwise. It, it, it's difficult, because if you're a landlord, how do you engage with your tenants and, your, and, and their employees? And you can sort of say that community, but it's so attractive, so again, it, absolutely, it's, it's, it's a constant, it's there. Particularly the bigger buildings. I'd argue the point, though, on the smaller buildings, how do they achieve that? Um, how do they build into that wider community? Um, and equally, how do they provide the services that we're talking about? Because in a bigger building, you know, what you've got to do that. In smaller buildings, how do you afford Do we have any other questions? Hi. Um, I'm not here tonight from Regis, but in a previous life, I was a regional director for Regis and managed a large number of properties. What fueled the Regis growth in my time 
was the, the flexibility of space, but driven by the economy. So the uncertainty of the economy was driving people to make shorter-term decisions and therefore driving that environment. Uh, I'm still connected to that market today through the business I'm with now PHS. And we still see that that is a growing rapidly market. At a time when there has been fewer buildings, commercial buildings, being built in the UK economy for decades. Outside of London there's little building programs, so there's even fewer office spaces available. So what's the view of the panel in terms of now the political environment has changed, whether you think your market will grow, or whether you think you will continue to be hemmed in by the service office flexible type market, and you'll have to adapt even further and accept that that will be the way of the future? Or do you think you've got something to compete with? I'll, I'll go. Um, I think from a corporate perspective, there is a, the, the, the traditional leasing market is still very strong. And, and I think corporates uh, are looking at it slightly differently with a sort of core and flex option. So in talking to my colleagues who advise the corporates there, they're probably going to be taking less space overall, but they're going to be utilising different forms of space, um, principally sort of co-working, uh, managed solutions, so the balance is going to change, I think, just in, in terms of the quantum of space, core and flex, and if you do a corporate survey of 250 EMEA clients, and the amount of, uh, and every year that conversation is just going up and up, we're going to be using more flex space, we don't know what sort of flex space, there is appetite to do it, and, and we certainly see that there's a slim down of the core function. Uh, but that's still very live and, 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 and providing great returns at the moment. So it depends on your view, view whether you see it as a threat or an opportunity. You know, I, I look in my market, um, it provides uh, a way in for that first time buyer um, or for the occupier that's starting in that market. You know, particularly if you think about my market with the throw gap with you know, the airports, if you arrive. Where do they stop? Do they come straight to central London? Uh, do they turn left? Do they turn right? And they get off the plane. Um, so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a start point. It provides core and flex. It provides that seabed for people to grow. But also, going back to the point of what we work in, and IWG and other operators have done, they've created competition, which has caused us in the dimensional market to up our game. That's not a bad thing, necessarily, in terms of how it's manifest and, 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 and moved forward. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, Regis did a deal to Regis um, uh, back in 98, 99. You know, they were taking hundreds of thousands of square foot out to the Western Corridor in particular. That's where they were really big before they came into central London. It didn't change the market. It just made the market more mature, mature because you had a, a strata level down at the down at a smaller event uh, where you could go and take some really good quality space but on the flexibles. Um, I do think the market's going to change, as I said earlier, though, I think it will become more of a landlord, white label, hybrid model, rather than perhaps the operators continuing to, to grow. <coughs> It depends how easy it's for people to move. It's still the plug and play, and you can drop into a service office reasonably quickly, but a lot of hassle, there's a lot of operational time expense to move a business to new digs. So, do you really want to be doing that for two years? And when you've got to a certain site, I don't know. People can make it quick and easy to move. Your data protection, all that kind of side, but cyber security is still really important, waiting, all that kind of stuff. So, I'm not sure there's a kind of a full package yet that makes it really easy for. 50 people are up, up, up moving every two years, so some people want that certainty. So the core of Flex is definitely going to be here to stay, whether it's core and there's a flexible office for the building.
Who knows, that sounds like a very good business idea in my in my eyes. Then no, no one's doing it, so so why not? Um, do we have any other questions? We've had 100% of the questions from the right hand side of the room. Yes, we have one on the left. Hi, uh, my name's Ikea, and for the last 10 years I've worked within the co-working industry, and uh, having spent some time also at British Land. And when I was at British Land, we launched something called Story, which makes <coughs> and one of the key one of the key minds, or one of the key issues was from, uh, from, a, from a landlord perspective was the valuation piece. Asset managers getting their head around, how do you value, you know, we talked about £250 a square foot, that's about right all in, but when you strip it back, it's still a premium versus conventional lease, but then how do you value that? So my question is, um, do you think that the valuation piece is one of the key pieces that's still holding that landlords versus conventional lease? I, I can jump in on that one. Yes. In, in very short summary, absolutely. Um, I think it is changing though. I mean, I reference Devonshire Square just because it's it's close to my heart. Um, but we've got um, one of the big values on that, and, and they are they are changing it. And I, I think for them, the key thing is we're offering, as I said, a net operating income type approach. Um, once you can demonstrate a real track record in your asset, um, and no offence to any sort of flex office providers, to a certain degree it doesn't really matter who you've got in there, as long as that service is being delivered, um, it's to some degree interchangeable. If you can demonstrate that the model's working, absolutely. Yes, I think we're a long way off uh, the difference between a 15-year FRI lease to a very strong company versus and more flex space, but it has to change. And you're right, that is one of the limitations at the moment. But we, as a house, are seeing that um, slowly but surely transform. Absolutely, it's become an EBITDA valuation model. Um, funny enough, one of our valuations in the book, Chris Stratton, did a piece with RFCS, I think it was published in the last year, which was dealing with exactly that, looking at the income, mm -hmm. the net income, rather than trying to buy a year or whatever it but, but I suppose the, the other bit for me has been really seeing an element of service. I do think there is a very strong argument because of core and flex that you should be adding an additional rental tone to the space, the conventional space that sits above the service. Um, now I'm trying to persuade my valuation colleagues that that's slightly different. Um, uh, uh, but absolutely it's accretive in value. We know it is because it means that the tenants are more sticky. They're going to stay because they can get 20, 30, 50 deaths, whatever it is, they're spent. They're valuing almost income security. But I think some of the complexity is SVVs getting stuck on leases. The guarantees aren't great. And you know that a reasonable drop in SVV might have won't pay to that patient. So if you get towards the end of the lease, they don't, they don't fancy it, it's not working as well. It doesn't matter. Then we'll be on to the next one. So that, that's, I think, part of the problem. So it's the, it's the, it's the business, the building's only good as being operated. It hasn't necessarily got big power support or the people who are in there who are marketing it doing a good job, so getting under the skin of the game, the data is really important, I think that's where value is getting a bit unstuck, but unless you're taking a random approach, you can't just buy service offices, then it's 50 basis points off, it's going to be right, let's look at the asset, look at it, who's running it, how's the kit, the kit and that servicing it, it's tricky, but I think as time goes on, I think, I, mean, I know the service offices have been around for a while, but they are expanding and more data will happen. Uh, but readers of mail sit, sit, sit around and hoover up their businesses when it's cheaper than the community.
pieces. We probably need to go through a cycle as well to see how some of these operations fare in the downturn, uh, and then we'll kind of have a more kind of level plan for what we're dealing with. So on that note, I'm going to ask another question. Yes or no to each of you, would you invest in WeWork? Andy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult question. Of what valuation? Yeah, current day valuation. Yes. Um, I'm only joint venture with them, so I'm going to say yes, because uh, <laughs> they're the standing ship. Let's just leave it at that. I'd invest in service offices. Yes or no, we work. <laughs> you can do that. to us. Look at the value of the business fund. Our yeah. bank. Okay, with that, I would invest in services. Great. Do we have any other questions from uh, the floor? No. In which case, I'd like to thank Backbone Connect initially um, for hosting tonight's event and for inviting us all. And to Andy, James, Ben and Simon for being panellists and to everybody for turning up tonight. Thanks very much.